Hallelujah. Let's continue in this attitude. Father, we pray today, as we sang earlier, awake my soul. I, I want to pray over us you would awake our spirit today. You would awake our imagination today. You would awake our heart. We speak to our conscious thinking. Be awakened today. Open up our understanding, Lord. Help us to grasp the nature of the people of God. What is it that makes the people of God the people of God in 2021? What's that like? Open up our thinking. Cause us to look wide. Cause us to look deep. Cause us to get an understanding. Reveal truth today to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. We ask your blessing over our church as the people of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, team. Thanks, everybody. So good to uh, have some bodies in the room and also to have some bodies out in outer space on the uh, live stream. So if you're on the live stream today, you're just as much a part of what's going on here as what's going on here. Um, school went back for me a little while ago, three weeks or something ago, and um, I got used to having this appendage uh, on my ear. We, we began to think how important ears are. Uh, if you didn't have ears, what would you do with your mask when you weren't wearing it? You'd be in a lot of trouble. So um, for the sake of not looking ridiculous, I will remove it. Look, I want you to use your imagination because we're going to talk about the people of God and any discussion on the people of God has to take into account the past. It has to look at how contemporary life looks as the people of God and it has to also cast our vision into the future to kind of interface how we see the future as the people of God. So we're going to look at the past, we're going to look at the present day and we're going to look into the future. I've actually called it recalling the past, rejoicing in the present and remembering the future. So will you use your imagination with me now? There was a reason why I prayed that at the start, because I want us to capture something of the people of God. You know, the people of God, it's a long history. And so I'm going to kind of be a bit dramatic. On the screen will come some slides of pictures of various things about Egypt, because the people of God have their history, their base, back with the people of Israel. And so my voice is going to change. I want you to use your imagination as I read this scripture to you from Exodus chapters 11 and 12. So Moses said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the son of the female slave who is at a handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout all Egypt. 
worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. <laughs> then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it into the blood in the basin. Put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. And then none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame, and he will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up in the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house with someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go! Worship the Lord as you requested. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said and go and bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in the kneading trough, wrapped in clothing. Israelites did as Moses instructed, and they asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, flocks, and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and they did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. You may have picked up along the way the distinction 
between Egypt and Israel. That many other people left with them. They were mixed together with the Israelites, though they were not Israelites. And that all the Lord's divisions left Israel. Total freedom. This is our heritage. This is our heritage. In fact, all of the New Testament writers start their writing with this in the background. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, we read, It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And in Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul writes, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. It's the same relationship imagery as for Israel. God wanted to adopt a people as his own. And it's lovely that it's a relationship. It's not something which is distant or aloof. So God intended all along a distinct, identifiable, recognizable people who were known by and grown through a relationship with him. I'll say that again. God intended all along to have a distinct, identifiable, recognizable people known by and grown through their relationship with him. Here's a bit of a snapshot from the Old Testament of God's intention. Exodus 19, verse 3 and 6, God says, my, I want you to be my own special treasure from among all the peoples of the earth, a kingdom of priests. Leviticus 26, verse 12 says, I will be your God, you shall be my people. This is going to be a theme that comes up all through the whole Bible. Jeremiah 32, 38, other way around, they will be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, 27, I will make my home among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. In Exodus, when God says a special or a peculiar people, special treasure, he's talking about if there was a crown and it had lots of jewels in the crown, the people that he chose would be that extra special jewel, the one that stands out from all the other jewels. That's what he's talking about. And when he refers to himself as I will be their people, he is saying, I, God, the Lord, the Almighty, Elohim, the mighty God. So he's, it's, it's miraculous it's, and it's not understandable. Um, the mighty God and insignificant man wants to come together with us to know us. And to be known by him. That was God's intention all along. God intervened at a certain point in history, which we know as Christmas time, followed 30 or so years later by Easter time, 
and Jesus was God's intervention. In Romans chapter 9, there's this whole long discourse by Paul about how God's intended purpose has now been added to through the uh, arrival of Jesus and that his teaching on the children of the promise now includes the Gentiles. Uh, let me just pick up a little bit from Romans chapter 9, verse 24. Even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people. You hear that? Remember that from Exodus? I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. They're speaking about the Gentiles and the prophecy about the Gentiles coming into and being under the fold of God in the people of God. Now, it's very interesting, Paul's reasoning here, because he creates an idea from what is glaringly apparent, really. He says, not only is God selecting from or calling from the Jews, but he's selecting or calling from the Gentiles. And it's surprising from both points of view. The Jews thought that they were all included because they were Jewish. And the Gentiles thought they were excluded because they were Gentiles. But God is gathering a redeemed people. This is his intervention. It's in a way that will simultaneously, at one time and for all time, it will silence presumption on the part of one party and it will bring hope to the most despairing in the part of the other party. See, Jesus is God's intervention. Reading on from Acts chapter 15. Everyone listen quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they'd finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. So the whole story of the gospel from Jesus' birth on is the story of a people who are not a people becoming part of the people of God. And it's, it's amazing that it took everybody by surprise because all of these New Testament writers are now drawing on the stuff that was in the Old Testament. In fact, so interesting that the New Testament church uh, became uh, known as the, the church of the Gentiles. They, the Gentiles overran or outnumbered, if you like, the Jewish converts. And Paul, in, in two places in the New Testament, des describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's how significant the number of people uh, being converted was. In Ephesians, Paul goes on and talks about, you know this passage, he is our peace, he's broken down the dividing wall, the barrier. This is an allusion to the temple 
where there was a court of the Gentiles, where they, Gentiles could go but no further past that wall. The wall is broken. Um, Paul says in Ephesians uh, 2.15, his purpose was to create in himself, Jesus, his purpose was to create, create one new humanity out of the two, therefore making peace. Verse 19, consequently, talking to the Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also, listen to this, members of his household. That's, we're taken in. Israel has a vast history and an immense uh, wealth of understanding about God. And we are taken into that household as Gentile believers. So now there's only two kinds of believers. There's Christian Jews or Christian Gentiles. In fact, there's only one kind of believer, Christian. Jesus has done away with the dividing wall. And God invested his energy into this. Because this is a summation or a final message in the whole topic of the people of the way, I looked around for a Bible verse that I thought might incorporate all of it, and I found this in Colossians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church and he says, We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ and we've heard of your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Faith, love and hope. They were the topics of our Previous three messages. If we go on to verse 11, we also pray that you'll be strengthened with his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. And this is what he has invested in us. Verse 13, he has, one, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Two, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Three, he's purchased our freedom. And four, he's forgiven our sins. So God's investment is pretty big in his people. Rescued, transferred, purchased, forgiven. We have a lot to be thankful for as we sit here today I think most of us in the building and online would probably be Gentile believers, Christians who are Gentiles, not in the Jewish tradition. We've got a lot to be thankful for because it wasn't like God changed plan mid-course. This was always his plan and it was revealed at the right time through Jesus. Now we are his people. So we can rejoice in the present. I think some of the things that make us distinctive as Christians, some of the things that make us known as the people of God are these things. We do have a tenacious distinction. Uh, we are meant to be different. We are meant to hang on to our difference and not to let it be 
um, overrun by all of the things that might be happening in society. When I went to New Zealand, uh, when was that? In 1983 or 1984, uh, I went there to be a school teacher. I'd grown up all my life in Sydney. I'd moved out to the country in Gilgandra, and where I brushed up on my Australian accent. <laughs> then I went to New Zealand teaching. Well, you can probably imagine the, uh, the distinctiveness of my accent amongst uh, the, the uh, prominent accent of the terribly British New Zealanders. But not only was my accent different, not only was I distinct because of that, I was distinct because I called things by different names. I wrote a few of them down. Well, we have a barbecue, you take an esky. If they have a barbecue, they take a chili bin. When it got hot, I wore thongs on my feet. They wore jandals. If I needed uh, a bottle of milk or something, I would go to the corner store. They went to the dairy. And this one really got me. I went to the dairy one day. Kathy was wanting to make some chocolate crackles. I asked the man at the, at the counter, um, where's your kofa? He says, I'm sorry, um, I don't think we have kofa. I said, you must have kofa. It's, it's a cooking thing. I had to then explain it was cooking for, we're making chocolate crackles. We want them to kind of harden. And he goes, oh, you must mean cremelta. I said, what does it look like? And he went, we went, it's in the dairy cabinet. I said, that looks pretty much like what I'm looking for. Um, and there were also some other customs that were different that made me distinct. Kathy and I would drive up to Auckland in a day. Most New Zealanders would stop once at least for an overnight stay because it was such a long drive. Crazy. There's uh, a musician I admire. His name is Sting. And uh, he wrote a song called Englishman in New York. And this is a quote from a little of the lyric he says, gentleness, sobriety are rare in this society. At night, a candle's brighter than the sun. That's what our life is meant to be like. Distinct, tenaciously distinct, hanging on to our distinction. You can find a whole lot of scriptural reference to this in 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a whole lot of stuff there where Paul, uh, Peter sorry, talks about us being temporary residents and foreigners, how we should keep away from the worldly influences that wage war against us. Uh, Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, come out from them and be separate. Why? Because God wants to live in us and he wants us to be his people. And if we're the temple of the living God, we can't have a part with things which are wrong. That is dark etc. There's Titus chapter 2. This is an interesting verse I found. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. He says, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. 
The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. We understand that. And we often will use the little acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. But in verse 12, it says, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. I, um, I was reading some work by John Piper and uh, he came up with another acronym, which he said is not half as uh, poetic as the God's riches at Christ's expense, but it captures the work that the Holy Spirit does after our conversion the teaching part, the life coach part. And this is John Piper's acronym for grace. The grace of God is God's rescuing and caring exertion. God's rescuing and caring exertion. So it's the work that God does after our salvation, the work that he does in us, the caring, the saying, don't walk there, walk here, it's on-the-job training, if you like, that the Holy Spirit does that helps us in our walk. So we have to hang on to that distinction, to be tenaciously distinct. God is also calling us to freedom, to be audaciously free, not to hold back on our freedom. Do you know the New Testament church was, and still is, I believe, comprised of politically or socially free people who are actually slaves of Christ or politically and socially enslaved people who are free in Christ. And the hallmarks of our freedom, according to the New Testament, are the only two that I could find. The first one is, in our life we should honour God and bring him glory and our freedom should, too, prioritise others in our love and service. Now, doesn't that sound to you like the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it. Love other people as yourself. That's the only two things that really should govern our freedom and our actions of freedom. But we have to be audacious with it. I read this story, which I'll just share with you. I see the, the numbers have now turned to red. It's the story of the McDonald's assistant manager. Around this time of year, we sold a lot of fillet of fish. We were busy and a woman came into the restaurant and said to me, I told you no tartare sauce. And then she proceeded to rub the sauce off the bun onto my face and down my shirt. Of course, in my mind, I was not thinking nice things. But my response was, I'm very sorry, ma'am. Uh, let me get you what you ordered. Why did I react like that? Who knows? But the upshot was I worked with several people who were not saved and they were always looking for a reason to say negative things about Christianity and they were dead silent. I was free to handle that situation however I wanted to, but I chose to live free in Christ and then the third aspect of our life so we've got tenacious distinction audacious freedom and adventurous mission whether we go across the room across the street or across the world the people of God are on mission when the church expends itself for the sake of others it becomes healthy and grows. 
It's a very important thing to be adventurous in our mission. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks to us about the mission that we have. You can show others the goodness of God. There's that whole distinction or that discussion about this, the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus becoming the cornerstone. And have a look at what it says here in verse 9. But you are not like that. Not, we don't stumble at the rock, the stone that causes people to stumble. Because we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Can you hear the echoes of Exodus? As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Verse 10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Another really great example of adventurous mission is this one from Pastor Brad Henry, who writes a devotional thing. Um, it's called uh, ultimatedecision.com if you want to check it out sometime. I received a text from a dear friend of mine. He said that his 15-year-old daughter, Katie, was going in for some tests to determine the reasons for some health issues she was having. I went to bed without knowing the results. I woke up the next morning and I had a text from Steve, Katie's dad. All it said was, stage four cancer. Now, Katie has started chemo, and she's in for a huge battle. Steve recently wrote on his Facebook page, Thank you, everyone. KK, which is a nickname for Katie, is fine. She's already said that she's ready for this, and she wants to do a missions trip with her friend, Ali. I told her that her wish has just come true. Wow, and has it ever. She stay tuned in because these girls are unbelievable. They love God and they love people. The intent of that message, as I interpret it, is that his daughter Katie going in for cancer treatment is seeing that as her mission. She's going to be in there amongst other people who are having the same kind of treatment and she's not going, oh, woe is me, but she's saying, God, here's an opportunity. Use me in this situation. And surely... As the people of God, that should be our prayer wherever we go. For good health and poor health, whether the sun's shining or whether it's raining, whatever circumstance, we should be praying to our Heavenly Father, God, what have you got for me today? Use me today. I want to be adventurous. I don't want to turn away from the adventure of the mission. And to finish up, let's have a look into the future. There's some great illustrations of God's people in Revelation, which is where we're heading now. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this wonderful contrast. Um, when Kathy, Rachel, Gideon and I walk around our block in the morning, particularly around the grand final time, we noted several people had put out their support for the Panthers. And there was one house that had a, a low-hanging branch and it had this flag on it with a, uh, a panther, rah, big roaring panther. And uh, when I read this passage, I thought of that. 
Um, let me read it to you and then we'll have a look at why I thought of it. Revelation 5 and verse 4. I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. This is the idea that I saw was everyone thinks of victory and they want to have an emblem which is kind of fierce and menacing and gives people, like, stirs people up. But no one chooses the image of a lamb. And the, the wording here is a diminutive word for lamb, which means a little lamb. And it looks as if it had been slaughtered. So it's not like the blood on the doorposts, which is dried over time. This lamb looked like it had been slaughtered, present tense, continuous present tense. The lamb has been slaughtered for us as the lamb has been slaughtered for people who will believe in five years and ten years' time. The blood is not drying. It's effective today. Verse 9, they sang a new song. And listen to this. We sang something like this this morning in uh, the very first song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed for God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. I hope you can see, as we've traced through the history of the people of God, the rich heritage we have from the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, the great intervention that God took through Jesus Christ, bringing us into that People of God, I will be their God, they will be my people. And now from every, as it says there, from every tribe and language and people and nation, Jesus' blood has ransomed people for God. It's a wonderful thing to be part of the people of God. But it's also a wonderful responsibility to be a member of the people of God. Because people are watching. Can I pray with us and online? Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus so that we may become your people and you can become our God. Jesus, the great intervention. Thank you, Lord, the lamb that was slain. We thank you, Father, that forever your sacrifice is effective and always working to bring a people to you. We thank you that as people of the way, we take on the responsibility to be the people of God, to be a people of love in our dealing with people, to share the confident hope that we have as we witness to test and try and risk 
and pray because of our faith in you that we might be more and more the people of God in this society which is moving away from what we hold dear. Help us to shine bright as the people of God in this 21st century, we pray. Amen.